We ready to go? Now, I've got a little exercise that I want you to humour me with before we start. Um, so, we, we, can we get into three groups? Um, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I've got names of famous Bible people in capital letters, and then, as well as that, interspersed, there'll be some important Bible events, and I want to see if you can get them in order. Right? So, just, just see where we're at. I'm not going to correct them or mark them or anything like that, but uh, um, just see how you go. So I could do four groups. I just have to cut the other lot out, but um, just just get in in three groups and uh, and so it's a group effort. And just put them out on the floor, um, or I don't know. You could put maybe one group could go on the table and one group could put them out on the piano, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just put them in order. Yeah, put put them in. Uh, you, uh, you don't have to match the event. Yeah, just put them in order. Yeah, yeah, just from earliest to latest. Yep. Well, if I just start around, Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought I'd leave them out. Yeah, you should do. Thank you. 
There's all these stories after this. Well, it just depends on my How are we going? Who's finished? I just I don't know this was whatever PowerPoint suggested at the time. Did you realise it was good? not really. I'm not, yeah, I don't even know why I chose this one. But, uh, Right, I'll, I'll put up the uh, the results on the on the on the PowerPoint. Um, see how you go with this. So the first one is Abraham, uh, and God made His covenant promise to Abraham to bless every nation in the earth through a descendant of Abraham. Then Abraham's son Isaac, who had a son Jacob, and Jacob had his name changed to Israel. And so Israel becomes the father of the nation. And, of course, his favourite son was Joseph. Uh, Joseph was the one who got them into Egypt. And Moses is the one who led Israel out of Egypt after 400 years. And so the event there is the Exodus. Uh, And then on the way into the Promised Land in the 40 years that they were wandering, uh, during that time God gave them the law. And then they had to get organised for the conquest of the land and the entry into the land. and the period of the judges comes along. Hang on, I've, I've missed Joshua. Yes. That was pretty poor, wasn't it? See, uh, that was what you call um, an intentional mistake, right? Just to see if you're paying attention. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. So Joshua should go in there at the conquest and entry stage, and then the judges. And and I've named two of the judges, so Deborah and, and Gideon. Um, and then the judges period was often quite lawless, and the kingship phase re-established some measure of calm. Um, not much, though. And so you had Saul and then David and then Solomon. And after Solomon's reign, during Solomon's reign, the temple was built, and then the kingdom divided into the north and the south. And then God raised up prophets like Elijah and then Elisha. And then they were, they were what's called... Uh, writing uh, speaking prophets and then the writing prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and lots of others besides Jeremiah prophesied before the exile Daniel prophesied during the exile in Dan- in uh, Babylon and then the people came back from exile Esther was in Persia uh, she and Mordecai didn't return from the exile then Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much close out the Old Testament story so how'd you go pretty good Righto. Well, good job. Uh, uh, if you can, if you can keep that sort of a framework in your head, then you're on the way to understanding the Old Testament. Uh,
Righto. If you want to resume the position, I've got, I've got a couple of slides that I'd like to show you. Uh, Dave very kindly copied out some sheets. Uh, so have a look at the, the first one. Um, Old, Old Testament theology. To talk about Old Testament theology is to look for the big themes that tie the Old Testament together. What are the priorities throughout the whole thing? Now, I was listening to a podcast on the way down here today uh, by Nancy Guthrie, and it's called Help Me Teach the Bible. And so this podcast series, she talks to uh, great scholars about the unique privileges of teaching each of the Bible's books. And Nancy Guthrie is a pretty well-known author and obviously a very clever lady. Uh, but there are some of the things that she said, I thought, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because she said it's only in the last 10 years that she's come to an understanding of how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to each other. And she said, I grew up in a Bible-believing church in a Christian home. I was steeped in the Bible and yet I didn't really get what the Old Testament was doing. Now, the way I learnt the Old Testament, the way I read the Old Testament when I was younger, going to Sunday school and all those sorts of things, was the, the Old Testament seemed to be... I was just talking to Mel before. He was telling me he loved Samson. Well, I think Samson was probably my favourite Old Testament character too because I learnt a lot of the Bible stories from this picture storybook Bible. And I, I loved the idea that there was this sort of superhero. It was like... It was biblical Superman. Um, and so, you know, this strong muscle man who can do anything. And so I formed the idea that the Old Testament was largely a collection of hero stories. And the chief value of it was that God used these people in wonderful, special ways. But they were just hero stories. And I didn't really ever get the connection. And the connection for us is that God is doing something in the world. And so these five themes that we can see here, the whole Old Testament presents and is unified by a number of themes. The first of them is monotheism. It means that there's a belief that there's one God. So that's how God has revealed himself. The, the world into which the Bible came was a world in which there were m multiple gods. But the Bible asserts that there's one God uh, and no other. Uh, and he's a purposeful creator who's made everything that there is for his glory and for his purposes. Into that world created by this one creator, God, the create, God made everything, but then the creation fell and the fall becomes the defining event and we are living in our share of the fall. Um, so if ever you've been troubled by ill health or by anything that makes you sad or distresses you, you are experiencing something that has come from the fall right the question is what will God do about it is he just going to leave it at that well the rest of the bible from Genesis 3 onwards tells us what God's going to do about the fall and about how people have been 
who were made to know God and to relate well to him and to enjoy living with him, how they can come back into a harmonious relationship with God because sin makes it impossible for that harmony to be regained. And so that means that God has to do something about it. So what does God do? Well, point three, uh, he chooses Israel. That's what election means. It means to make a choice. God chose Israel. He didn't choose the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Greeks or anyone else. He chose Israel, an insignificant group of people, to be the means by which he would do what he was going to do and show what he wanted to show about himself. And so... Uh, right from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 we get the promise that a, a descendant of Eve will crush the serpent's head so the rest of the Bible is the search for the serpent crusher in Genesis 12 we're told that it will be one of Abraham's descendants who restores God's blessing to a cursed world so the rest of the Bible from Genesis 12 onwards is a search for the serpent crusher descended from Abraham um covenant membership god pledges himself to his people israel and initiates a covenant with them a covenant means that god enters into a binding agreement now in those days if you went if you bought a piece of land or if you um, gave your daughter to be married to another family uh, you entered into a covenant and in that culture to break a covenant was a thing of shame and so because your name and your character depended on you honoring your commitments and so God makes a covenant with the descendants of Abraham. Um, and it's not something that is just for the recipient, which was Abraham in the first place. It's for everybody who descends from him after that. The covenant is a binding one. But the thing about people, because of the fall, is people are sinful and they will fail to keep the covenant. So the only way that the covenant can actually work is if God is unfailing in his capacity to keep his side of the bargain. So he calls the descendants of Abraham who become known as Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had his name to Israel, his change to Israel. His descendants are the children of Israel or the Israelites. Um, it was through them he's going to bring the blessing to the world. But if they're to do that, they need to live within the framework of his law. And the law is how they maintain the covenant. And so covenant membership... God's covenant is an act of his grace to his people but everybody who signs on to the covenant or they're actually born into it they're responsible to lay hold of that grace so one thing about the old testament is that God always acts and his people must respond so God saved his people through the exodus he gives them the law to frame the nature of their response to him so God always acts first and a human response is a response to God's grace. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say that grace is... The Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is grace. That's simply not true. Right throughout the whole 66 books of the Bible, God is shown as a merciful, gracious, just God. A God who's rich in mercy, who's full of grace. And so you see that in the Old Testament. But if they're to maintain the covenant then they need to live by the law because if they don't live by the law, they will be evicted from the land. Now, because of human sinfulness and because of the human capacity to get things wrong all the time, eschatology is the fifth of the Old Testament theological categories. Don't be scared of the term eschatology. It just means the study of the last things. And so what it means is that history has a purpose. It's pointed somewhere. 
Now, a lot of the societies that the Bible was written to viewed history as an endless cycle, just going round and round and round, same thing over and over again. The way that the Bible represents history is that it has a definite beginning and it's headed to a definite end. So history is a line, right? Starting point, end point. And so the, the, new, the Old Testament uh, says that there was a purpose that God raised Abraham for and that was to be the source of the return of his blessing to the world. Uh, and so the rest of Abraham's descendants need to be the means by which that happens, but it will require that they keep the covenant. But along the way, Israel's people showed that they needed not just God's leadership but stern human leadership and they asked for a king like the nations. Now, the idea of having a king wasn't envisaged right at the outset, it doesn't seem, and yet it's an idea that developed. Now, a king was anointed uh, with oil to show that he'd become a king and and was set apart to be king. And the, the Hebrew word for anointing is the where we get our word Messiah from. And so God promises that he's actually going to send a great king. And so the idea comes into Israel's history that they're looking forward through these human kings to a king that's going to be greater than any of them and because of the constant failure of God's people the prophets are raised up to say there's there's a great future for not just Israel but for the whole world that will depend on Israel's king living according to God's covenant So they're just some of the big theological things that drive the whole Old Testament. But as we think about the history books, they're some of the things to look out for. How God is working his purposes out through his people for the blessing of the whole world, looking ahead to a day when there'll be a final point where God's Messiah will restore conditions just as they should have been in the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense so far? So there's a story, there's a thread that runs through the whole thing. Now in terms of history, have a look at this. I've got a PowerPoint presentation of some key dates and people. So if we think of history as a timeline, beginning and working towards an end, we're, we're looking at the the, uh, the period of a couple of thousand years of, of Old Testament history. We'll start with, with Abraham, he was the one that God called. That's around about 2,000 years before Christ. Um, Abraham was told in Genesis 15 that his descendants would end up for 400 years in a land not their own, not the land that God had promised. So Genesis 15 says they're going to be there for 400 years. Well, it turns out that that land is Egypt. And they were there for 400 years. And, of course, we know the story of Joseph. That's how they got to Egypt uh, to escape a famine. But they stayed in Egypt for 400 years. And after that 400, or during that 400-year period, the Egyptians regarded them as something of a threat and so they were made to become slaves and uh, and they cried out to God and God rescued them in the event that we call the Exodus after that 400 year period uh, in Egypt and so the Exodus is the great event in the Old Testament of how God saves his people it becomes a model for what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. So don't skip the Exodus. You've got to get the Exodus. How was the Exodus affected? How did, how did God achieve the release of his people? Passover lamb, right? So God sent plagues, but the climactic plague, the tenth one, involved the death of the firstborn of all every family of Egypt 
And the Israelites were spared because they sacrificed a lamb without blemish and painted its blood over the doorposts of their houses. And so what that tells... There's, there's something richly symbolic there. God will save his people through a sacrificial lamb. And it's no accident that when Jesus comes along, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. So God establishes a pattern in Exodus that will be repeated and, and enlarged on in the ministry of Jesus. Anyway, after the Exodus, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness for a range of reasons, uh, largely to do with their failure. But then after that, the conquest comes along. They had to conquer the land of Canaan. And in conquering the land of Canaan, they had to evict the people that already lived there. We'll think about that a bit more in a moment. But uh, it wasn't just that they were going to walk in unchallenged to the land. They actually had to conquer it. And so the next phase in the Bible story is the phase that we could call the period of the judges and the kings. So after they're settled in the land, the land was led by... The people were led by people called judges. uh, And after that, they were succeeded by kings. So the first king who rose to the throne in about 1050 BC was Saul then uh, he wasn't he started out well but didn't end well and so David replaced him uh, as the anointed king of Israel and then David was replaced by his son and so they all had fairly lengthy reigns but Solomon made a huge mistake uh, in worshipping the gods he married many women and he worshipped the gods that that those wives worshipped as well and that led to Israel um, being distracted from the worship of the one true God and Solomon became infatuated with Jerusalem and making Jerusalem a special place, the place of the temple but certainly the, the place of his palace and that annoyed the northern tribes and the northern tribes felt they weren't getting a fair treatment. It's a bit like I think how Western Australians sometimes feel about Australia being ruled from Canberra. Like Canberra seems so far from Perth that it's not hard for a Western Australian Premier to persuade the people we're not getting a fair deal. And that happened in Israel. So the northern tribes thought, we've coughed up all this money for the temple and for the, for the palace, and yet we've been left out. And so Solomon was succeeded by his son Rehoboam, and uh, Rehoboam asked his advisors, the old advisors and the young advisors, should I go hard on the people or easy? The old ones said... Yeah, lower the taxes a bit and they'll love you. But the young one said, no, tax them more. And so he went with the advice of the young advisers and guess what? The northern tribes said, we're off. And so the kingdom divided. Um, and so... Steve, is there any relevance? I'm just looking at the numbers up there of judges and kings. Uh, Solomon's 971 would be 1831, would it? Mm-hmm. Just to... No, so is, is there any 60 years. Uh, Saul was 60. David was. Saul, Saul's four, they're all about 40. Yeah. Yeah, you've got, you've got to subtract because we, we, we're counting the numbers down BC. Yeah, sorry, yeah. that's all right. But there probably is. There probably is because they're all about 40, and 40 is the period of a biblical generation. And in terms of biblical numeral the numbers in the bible are symbolic and tens a number of completeness and earth four is the number of the earth and so it's like 40 years is a generation and so it's sort of symbolically saying they've ruled long enough yeah this is a good 
you know, uh, a good length of time. Um, but anyway, the kingdom split in 930 BC. And this is another thing that used to trip me up in my reading of the Old Testament because the northern kingdom, and I'm going to show you a map in a moment, became, it went on being called Israel. And the southern kingdom was known as Judah. And I think, I thought the whole lot was Israel. Well, it used to be, but not anymore. And so you need to get your head around Israel and Judah. Israel's the north, Judah is the south. Now, all of this is being played out in the context of world history and while Israel was living, and Israel as a nation, has anybody been there? It's small, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, it's tiny. It's only about as big as Gippsland. So if you've got an idea of how big Gippsland is, that's about how big Israel is. So when Moses was told he wasn't going to be able to enter the promised land, but God took him up to the top of Mount Pisgah and he could see the whole land from the top of the mountain. So it's really not a very big place. And so Israel's this minor little piece of territory, a fairly small population, but they're surrounded by much more powerful nations. And the, the dominant power throughout a lot of the time that Israel was forming was Assyria. And so the Assyrians invaded Israel in, 500, in 722 BC and, and took a hold of uh, all of the people from the northern tribe. So 930 to 722 two is about 200 years after the kingdom split the northern kingdom went its merry way for 200 years they had their own separate kings and then the Assyrians came in and conquered them and then the southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little bit longer the Babylonians were the dominant power at that time and in 586 BC the Babylonians came in and took hold of Jerusalem destroyed Jerusalem completely including the temple and they took all the people into exile in Babylon um, but then the Babylonians were succeeded by Persia and you can read about that in the book of Daniel so Belshazzar's having this feast um, and he sees the handwriting on the wall doesn't realize that the Persian army is at the gates of Babylon they're going to invade and wipe him out the next day uh, so you can read about that in the book of Daniel so Persia becomes the next great power and it was the Persian Empire that allowed some of the Jews to return from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem because Cyrus, the leader of Persia, the emperor of Persia, he thought his empire would be stronger if the people were happier where they came from. And so he said, go back home, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild your temple because he thought that that would work out best for his policies. Now, a lot of the Jews had become very comfortable living in Babylon. They'd been there for about 70 years, and so a lot didn't return. Uh, and so that meant that it took a fair while to get the temple and the walls rebuilt. One of those who didn't return was Esther. So she's happy in Persia, um, so she doesn't come back. So the, the story of Esther is just this little window on life in exile. But then Ezra and then Nehemiah both came back and they initiated... Um, Ezra tried to get the temple rebuilt and Nehemiah want, uh, was famous for getting the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. So that's, they're the major events of Israelite history as they span this 2,000-year period. Now, you notice that there's a gap down here. Um, the Bible stops... The storyline of the Bible stops about 400 B.C., now, there's books that you can read. Things, uh, you, have you heard of the Apocrypha? The, the Apocrypha is books that 
were written in the period after the end of the Old Testament, but before Jesus. Now, the Catholics continue to acknowledge a number of those books. And so if you want to get a taste of what the history is like after the book of Malachi, but before the time of Jesus, then read the books of Maccabees. Uh, because they, they talk about the history of what's sometimes called the intertestamental period. But there's 400 pretty much silent years there. But that's, they're, they're the major events of Israelite history, um, over about 1500 years. Now, these next little boxes, I hope you can see, um, I've tried to show the coverage of the different books. So the book of Judges covers the Judges period, but the, the period of the kingdom, of, of the kings of Israel is covered by 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. Um, then the prophets, who we're not going to talk about today, uh, the prophets intersect with the history books uh, because the prophets come into Israel's history to remind Israel to get back to living according to the terms of the covenant. Okay. Is that all right so far? Right. Okay. This is the, the land... When they came into the, um, to Israel or into Canaan, out of Egypt, the history books, Joshua in particular, talks about the division of the land. So each of the tribes had to be given an allocation, and it was uh, the allocation was meant to reflect the size of the tribe. So each of the various tribes was was granted land. Uh, some of the tribes, uh, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben, asked permission to take up land on the eastern side of the Jordan and Joshua said you can so long as you come over and help us clear out the Canaanites on the west of the Jordan and when we've done that then you can go back and take that land so the the tribes over to the east of the Jordan over here um, became known as the Transjordanian tribes they were across the Jordan Transjordan and so you had half of the tribe of Manasseh you had the smaller tribe of Gad and also the tribe of Reuben over over the river. And if you've read Joshua, you'll realise that that almost caused civil war. Do you remember that story? So the tribes that wanted to base themselves on the other side of the river, they built a memorial, they built an altar next to the Jordan. And all of the other tribes said, hang on, you're building an alternative place of worship. If you do that, we're going to come and fight you. And it was, it was looking like it was going to be a civil war. But uh, fortunately, karma heads prevailed and the people from the east of the Jordan said, now we're only building this pile here so that when our children ask in the years to come, how come we're not on the other side of the Jordan, they'll be able to look at this pile of stones and we'll be able to tell them, no, we belong there too. It's just we decided to live over here. So anyway, that was, it was a bit of a problem right in the early days. Well, anyway, the kingdom divided in 930 BC after Solomon's son Rehoboam made that terrible decision to listen to his young advisers and to be a, a harder taskmaster than his father. And so after that, the tribal areas are much less prominent. And, and so you've got the southern tribe of Judah, that becomes the name of the new kingdom. And so all the kings of Judah, but then the northern tribes are known as the kings of Israel. And, and so if you read in First Kings, you'll read about the king of Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and they just intersperse. Now, the interesting thing is the northern tribes of, in Israel, not one of their kings is reckoned to be a good ruler, not one. There were some good kings in Judah, 
but most of them were pretty bad too, right? And so what that tells us is if Israel's ever going to be ruled well, they'll need a better king even than David. Um, So anyway, the kingdom phase came to an end when first of all the Assyrians invaded and took captive the northern tribe of Israel and much of the population was deported. The Assyrians had a policy when they invaded somewhere, they would remove the local population and disperse them throughout the rest of their empire because they didn't want to have a group of people who might club together and prove to be a military threat against them. And they also promoted intermarriage. So they wanted the people of the northern tribes to intermarry with people from wherever they ended up. Some of the people stayed behind in the land, but the Assyrians promoted intermarriage, and so their descendants became known as the Samaritans. And so that's why when you get to the New Testament, the Jews hate the Samaritans because they're not proper descendants of Abraham because they've been, they're, they're a result of the union of Israelite people and non-Israelite people. Does that make sense? So this ancient animosity stems back to the Assyrian concept of forcing intermarriage to dilute the ethnic strength of the people that they conquered. Anyway, the northern tribes, Israel, disappear from history. Um, Nothing further is heard about them. But then, and so that's what the Assyrian Empire looked like. It, it was a it was a vast area. The Assyrians are incredibly cruel. Uh, if you got anybody been to the British Museum, I went there a couple of years ago, and I was over in England to be interviewed by my prospective son-in-law. And uh, you, you go into this room, and it's the the palace of Ashurbanipal, who was one of the rulers of Assyria, and it's his bedroom, and he had these carvings. Uh, relief carvings that told the story of some of his conquests and one of the conquests was of the the city of Lachish which is in northern Israel and you can look across it's like reading a cartoon and you can see all the you can see the ladders climb and, and soldiers climbing the ladders and getting over the walls but there's this rather nasty little bit where people have been scun alive uh, it's called flaying and the Assyrians, if you heard they were on the march, you wanted to be in good, you know, good relationships with them. The Assyrians were brutal. Uh, and so they ruled a very large area of territory. But then the southern tribe of Judah uh, was invaded in 586 BC by the Babylonians. They'd become the dominant power. Now, all the while, God was sending prophets saying, if you don't straighten up, if you don't return to living by the covenant, you're going to be invaded and just like Deuteronomy said, you'll be taken captive. Well, they didn't listen to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these people. Uh, and so the Babylonians came in and conquered the southern tribes, or the southern tribe of Judah, uh, in 586 BC. Um, most of the population was deported to Babylon. So that's what the Babylonian Empire looked like. It took over from the Assyrians. It was even crueler than the Assyrians. Uh, and they, they reigned over a very large area of territory as well. Uh, but then Babylon fell to Cyrus of Persia and it was Cyrus who said to the Jews you can go back and rebuild your city and your temple well that's what the Persian Empire looked like you know how we run the marathon you know the marathon yeah yeah marathon was a battle between the Persians and the next great empire which was the Greeks and uh 
But then the Greeks were overtaken by the Romans and the Romans were in power when Jesus was born. And so the world at that time was just this procession of different military powers that ruled very large areas. Um, you know where the Australian soldiers, the Australian and New Zealand soldiers went to fight Gallipoli? Uh, Gallipoli is... It, it's, it's in... Um, it's, it's actually the land bridge to Europe. Artaxerxes... You know, Darius... A Persian actually built a bridge of boats across the Dardanelles where the Australian soldiers went and he lashed these boats together to get all of his soldiers across so they could walk through and fight the Greeks at Marathon. Um, they were pretty serious about their wars back in those days and nothing much has changed, has it? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the Persian Empire. It was vast, but Israel was just this... T- or Judah was just this tiny little dot on the map uh, as part of it. Anyway... So that's just an outline of Israelite history, right? So how does, how does the Bible deal with that? Um, well, it shows us how God is push, pushing his purposes through uh, and, and some of those purposes involve big events of history. So the second page of the, the handout... Um, We, our, our old, what we call, you'll never meet a Jew who calls what we call the Old Testament the Old Testament. To them it's the law or the Torah, right? It's just their holy book because they don't believe in a New Testament. Uh, but according to the way that the Hebrew Bible's laid out, they've got four divisions. There's the law or the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. There's the former prophets, which is Joshua all the way through to Second Kings. There's the latter prophets, which is Isaiah to Malachi. And then there's the writings, which is all those books that I've listed there. And the writings includes the poetic books, but it also includes a couple of books that we would regard as historical. So things like Daniel and and Chronicles and Nehemiah and Ezra, um, which tell the story of Israel's history, but they were included in the Hebrew Bible as part of the writings. But notice that the history books, some of them are called the former prophets, and then the latter prophets are, are those people that God raised up to speak to Israel about resuming their their um, their covenant anyway our our bible's laid out a bit differently so just to to flick through some of the big things there's a lot here that hopefully you'll find helpful if as you read it at home but joshua concerns the conquest and the settlement of the land Um, moses had died joshua was the new leader joshua is a book that shows the israelites almost at their best they're doing pretty much what god says and so they conquer the land and they've got places to live. So remember that God had promised Abraham descendants, land to live in, and that he would bless the whole world. So by the time we get to the end of Joshua, we've got descendants and land. So God's plans look as though they're on track. Um, then you move over, uh, and the book of Judges shows Israel, well, not perhaps at its worst, but certainly on the way down. And the book of Judges is, is a fascinating story. It's got stories like Samson. Um, but we'll, we'll have a l- little bit more of a look at Judges in a moment. Uh, for the 300-year period of the Judges, Israel gets worse and worse. And, uh, and by the end of the book, we're told that uh, every man did what he saw fit in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And so it seems like they need something stronger than a judge to rule Israel. But I've got a little formula there which I learned. I can't remember where I learned it, but uh, I think it makes sense. 
And so under the, the heading structure and main themes, as you read through the book of Judges, you'll notice an A, B, C, D, E pass, uh, pattern coming along all the time. So the pattern goes like this, apostasy, bondage, crying out, deliverance and ease. So Israel apostatizes with the gods of the nations. They're into bondage, the nations invade them. They cry out to God, God raises up a deliverer, the deliverer rules for a period of time, they go to a period of ease and then the cycle starts again. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things you'll notice. As you read the book of Judges, watch out for how the, each judge gets a bit worse than the one before. So by the time you get to Samson, he's as bad as it gets. right? And there's little things. So but by the time Samson comes, they don't even cry out to God. Um, that's how far removed they are from him. Um, so Judges and then Ruth, which in the Hebrew Bibles in the writings, Ruth is like this little window of Israel at its best at the time of the judges and on the surface it looks like a very pleasant love story but there's much more to it than that because Ruth is a Moabiteess so she's not by birth a member of the covenant family and yet she's welcomed in in one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible I reckon where she says to her mother-in-law Naomi you know the story of Ruth yeah and you know Naomi and her husband have gone into uh, into Moab because there's a famine in Israel. Her two sons marry girls. Father dies, the two boys die, and Naomi thinks, I better go back home. And one of the sisters says, the sister in, sisters-in-law says, well, I'll stay here. But Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And that, I reckon is a great little phrase to latch onto because that's who we are. Who, who are we? We've people who've become members of God's covenant family by worshipping Israel's God. Where you go, I go, will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth becomes a model of what non-Jewish believers are welcomed into the family of Israel through worshipping Israel's God. So... Um, and of course, Ruth ends up marrying Boaz, who becomes a, a, an ancestor of not only King David but the Lord Jesus. Um, so then you get to First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel in the Hebrew Bible were one book, uh, and First and Second Samuel pick up from where Judges left off. Judges, where there was no king in Israel. Well, now the people say we need a king, and Samuel says to them. If you get a king, it's going to work out like this. And they say, yep, but we want a king. Uh, and so God says, well, don't worry. He says, it's not you they've rejected, it's me. And so the books of Samuel deal with the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. Um, and uh, God's given them instructions in Deuteronomy 17 about what they should look for in a king. And First and Second Samuel and certainly First and Second Kings show what happens when the king departs from the covenant and when the people follow him. And so if it's a bad king, then the people will go off. And so it's getting us ready for the fact that God will work his purposes out, but we, we're going to need a better king than any of the ones that we've seen there. And so David is celebrated as the great king of Judah in 2 Samuel. Uh, and, and the focus is really now on the, on the tribe of Judah. They're the dominant tribe in the, uh, the Israelite coalition. Uh, but even David is not perfect. And so you come into First Kings, and First Kings traces the reign of Solomon, uh, Solomon who is credited as being the wisest man in the world. David 
asks God if he can build a temple. And God says, no, you can't. And we were talking about this a bit before. It's because David was a warrior. He had blood on his hands. And God said, the temple needs to be built by a man of peace. And so Solomon builds the temple. But in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, you wanted to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. But the house that God's talking about is a dynasty. And so God says in 2 Samuel 7, David, you will have a descendant on a throne eternally. Right, and of course that's a prediction that has to be fulfilled in Jesus. But then First Kings talks about Solomon being the wisest man of all. He builds the temple, but then right after he's built the temple, it tells us about all the women he marries, and and they led his heart astray, and that led directly to the destruction of the Israelite kingdom. First and Second Chronicles gives a parallel history, focused mainly on Judah. So First and Second Kings talks about the kings of the Northern Empire and the Northern Kingdom and the Southern. First and Second Chronicles talks about the history of Israel, particularly concentrating on David and his line. Um, and so then the nation's story ends in exile and Ezra and Nehemiah give us a window on what it's like for people to return from exile and try to resume Israelite national life back in Jerusalem. Do you know why they end up being called the Jews? That, that starts in the time of the exile and it comes from the fact that what remains of God's people are the people from Judah. So the northern tribes disappear and all that's left is the people from Jerusalem who were of the tribe of Judah that were transported to Babylon and when they come back they've got a new name, they're now called Jews. So originally they were Hebrews or Israelites living in the land of Canaan Eventually the land becomes called Israel, which is what it's called today. Uh, but they got the name Jew because all that was left of them was the tribe of Judah, right? Um, do you know where the name Palestine comes from? Because that's if, if you go across there now, you'll see the nation of Israel, but right next to it you've got Palestine. Palestine was the name that the Romans gave to that area, and that was because they couldn't say Philistine. So it was the land where the Philistines lived and the Romans sort of Latinised that and it comes out as Palestine. So uh, so there's still Palestinians living there today. They're Arabic people, not Jewish people. And, of course, we've got all that, all that trouble that goes there as well. So there, that's just a, an outline of Israelite history in the Bible. Um, can I just show you something about the book of Judges? If you can get it to work. There we go. Right. So there's the map of Israel. Uh, without all of the tribal divisions. So after the book of Joshua, after Joshua, I say Joshua is a good book, things are going okay. Judges shows just what can go wrong when people don't live according to God's law. Now one of the things about reading the history books or any narrative section of the Bible, you've got to ask yourself the question, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is it describing how things were or is it prescribing how things ought to be done? There's a lot of things in the book of Judges which are there as bad examples. So 
have you read the story of Jephthah? Jephthah was a man, he, he was a crooked man, he was an illegitimate child, no one liked him, uh, but he was a rough and tough guy who had some pretty rough and tough mates. And so when his part of Israel was getting pressured by the nations around and about, the people sort of came crawling on hands and knees and said, Jephthah, do you think you could organise an army? And so he, he makes a few conditions, but he promises God that if God gives him victory, the first thing that's set foot out of his house when he gets home, he will sacrifice. And guess who's first out the door? It's his one and only daughter. Now, what are we to make of this? Does that mean that Jephthah was so committed to honouring his promises to God that he should even sacrifice a child? Is that what God wants of us? The answer is no. That's there as a bad example of how degenerate Israel had become because in the book of Leviticus, there's a provision for breaking a rash vow. So if you promise something and realise afterwards that was really dumb, then there's a provision for undoing a rash vow. And as well as that, God had actually said that one of the reasons he was booting the Canaanites out was because they practised child sacrifice. So God's not going to require one of his people to sacrifice a child. Jephthah did that and it was a big mistake. So when you get to that in your reading of Judges, don't think, oh boy, what have I got to learn out of this? Well, actually, there is something to learn. Don't do it, right? So some things in the Bible are there as bad examples. Uh, Have you ever heard of those demotivational posters? Ray Ray Patchett loves them. Um, I've forgotten what there's a name for them, but you know how you go into offices and they've got those beautiful pictures of sunsets and there's a a cute little saying underneath of it? Well, these demotivational posters have got beautiful pictures with funny things underneath and one of them is of a ship sinking and it says, uh, it may be that the purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others, right? That's Jephthah, right? Uh, there's another way of saying that. I'm not completely useless. I can always serve as a bad example. Right. Uh, so that's Jephthah. Anyway, Judges works a bit like this. You've got the cycle of A, B, C, D, E. Apostasy, bondage, cry out, deliverer and ease. Right. And you'll see that pattern. What's that, Pat? No, I, I just wondered whether that Jephthah is still alive. Remember, I was reading about all these comics. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that was Jethro, wasn't it? Not Jephthah, anyway. So remember the pattern A, B, C, D, E, right? Um, Judges 1 and 2 are like a summary that help us to understand the rest of it. And so Judges 2 verse 19 says, When the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, from our vantage point, we sit back and go, the idiots, why would they do something like that? Don't we? We sit in judgment on these stupid Israelites. But the fact is that the worship of the gods of the nations around about it was very, very attractive. The worship of the gods around it. I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. But um, anyway, this is the cycle. It's, it's not just a cycle, it's a spiral. They get worse and worse and worse. So they apostatise, they worship the gods of other nations. The other nations invade, God allows them to take them into captivity or bondage. Uh, they cry out to God, eventually they come to a moment of sanity and then God raises up a deliverer. Things are going all right. They have periods of you know, up to 80 years of going all right. And then, because of the ease, they apostatise again. And so on and on it goes. 
Now, one thing about the book of Judges is that it's actually written geographically. And if you were to look at the place names and the people and look at a map, you'd see that there's a real pattern to it. So it's really handy to have a map with you as you read the Bible sometimes. So the first judge named in in Judges 7 is Othniel, and he's from Judah. So we know that Judah's a southern tribe. The next one is Ehud. Uh, He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, which is a bit to the north. Now, at that stage, we're told that the enemy are the Moabites, who come from the south and the east down beyond the Dead Sea. Then the next judge we read of is Shamgar, and we don't read much about him at all. He's just named. So we get two major judges and then a minor judge. At that stage, the uh, the Philistines are the major problem, and they become a big problem all the way through the Old Testament story, um, most famously with uh, Goliath. Well, then God raises up Deborah, which is an interesting commentary because she's a woman, and and she says God will give the victory into the hand of a woman, which shames the um, the judge known uh, the, the other judge that was working along with her, whose name I've temporarily forgotten. Uh, but the Canaanites are the problem there. And then Gideon's raised up, and um, Gideon is from Manasseh, and and we're told there that the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Eastern people are the threat to Israel at that stage. Then you get another minor judge, Tola, from Issachar. You get another minor judge, Jair, from Gilead and Manasseh. And then you get another major judge in chapter 10, that's Jephthah. He gets a pretty big chunk of the story all the way through to chapter 12. And he's from Gilead and Manasseh. Um, So he's over the other side of the Jordan. Then you get Ibzan, Elon and Abdon. And then you get Samson. Can you see how the pattern goes? Two major judges, one minor judge. Two major judges, two minor judges. One major judge, three minor judges, and then Samson's the daddy of them all, right? Jephthah's pretty bad, Samson's the worst. Um, He's not a great hero. Samson's an example of what happens when you take your eyes off God and live your way, and he's mainly just after the women. Um, So Samson is interesting because it was his eyes that get him into trouble. And that's where all of our problems began because Eve saw that the fruit was good. And so Samson's eyes get him into trouble. He just likes the look of these Philistine women. Um, And so he's in there as a bad example of how badly the wheels can come off. And so that's the pattern that you see if you read the book of Judges with a map. So there's 12 judges, one for each of the tribes, over about 300 years. And the big problem in those days was that they worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And these were fertility gods and goddesses. And so coming into a land where they were going to be settled down, they were going to raise crops, and all the the nations around about them worshipped fertility gods. And so you prayed to the god that he would give you a good harvest or she would give you a good harvest. And Israel finds the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth pretty um, attractive because the worship of Baal especially was very sexual. So you'd you'd go to the temple... And there'd be prostitutes there. And if you were having sex with a prostitute, it was like you were paying out the God. And there's a lot of blokes around who think that's a pretty good deal. That's my kind of religion. Right? So when we sit back and criticise Israel, we've got to remember, we're actually, we're capable of the same thing. Right? Um, here's the thing about temptation. You'll never be tempted to do something you don't want to do. And they fell for it. To, to walk in God's ways actually requires discipline and self-control. Right. And, and so these dark periods of Israel's national life, they, they abandoned self-control and they went instead with the worship of the people around about because it was very attractive. Um, 
And so religion for those people was manipulation of gods for their benefits. We haven't really got time to go into it in any, any detail, but I, I have got a little something on the, um, on the sheet that I gave out. It'll be on the second sheet uh, in relation to the book of Joshua. What's one of the biggest troubles to us in reading the history books? What's, it, it's one of those things that atheists love to talk about. Violence. What's that? Violence. Violence, right? Is there any violence in the history books? Lots of it. Are we meant to enjoy it? Of course not. Right? Um, violence is always yucky and horrible, right? Um, but it's there. So what are we going to do with it? Well, we've got to deal with it, right? Um, the book of Proverbs has a proverb that says, don't rejoice even when the wicked perish. I can remember a few years ago when um, Osama bin Laden was executed and there was much rejoicing from senior American political figures. And I thought, that's offensive. Look, he was, a, he was a terrible man responsible for terrible things, but we shouldn't rejoice in the death of people. I don't... Yeah, you know, I think that's... Anyway... Uh, but the issue of violence is a big one and atheists will say, look at this, God told them to kill everybody. Now, like I say, we haven't really got time to go through it, but there's, there's a couple of principles that, that, we, that I'd just like to introduce. Um, and it's down the bottom of, of the first page, a big issue. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 7, the people are told when they get into the promised land that they're to show no mercy to the people that they find there. Um, so a few principles, Exodus 19, Psalm 24, the earth belongs to Yahweh, he can do whatever he likes. It's his, it's his world. Uh, in Genesis 15 and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we're told that the purpose of this command is that God is outsourcing his judgment of the Canaanites to his people. Now the Canaanites practised particularly wicked version of religion. Uh, it was full of sex and, and, and manipulation of the spirits. But as well as that, they practised um, child sacrifice. So God gave them 400 years to straighten up. That's what you get out of Genesis 15. Uh, God says to Abraham, your descendants will go into the land for 400 years because the wickedness of the Ammonites has not yet reached its full measure. So the Ammonites is like an umbrella term for all the tribes of, of Canaan. And so the Canaanites were not nice people. Now the Israelites were often not nice people, but God said, I'm going to give you that land because the land is going to spew them out. But God trusts judgment to his people. Now the idea of judgment's not it's never going to make us friends. People don't like to hear that God is a God of justice and God is going to demand an accounting for, for the way we live our lives. But uh, the fact is that in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that, that God's people, the church, will actually share in judging the nations. Have you ever thought about that? that, that that's New Testament theology. Uh, we will share in the judging of the nations. And so my take on this whole thing is that it's horrific. The violence that we see there is, is not pleasant. But when you look at someone like Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, when the spies come to her place... She says in Joshua chapter 2, everybody here has heard of what your God did when he brought you out of Egypt. Every knee here is shaking. Our hearts are giving way. 
And so she says to the, these two spies, when you come into the land, spare me and my family, right? And what do they do? They spare her. In fact, God instructs them to spare her. But what do the rest of the people of Jericho do? They hold out. So even though Rahab says, we've all heard of you, we're all terrified, everybody else in Jericho could have done what Rahab did. But no, God gives them seven more days. They march around the city day after day after day and the people are inside and all they had to do was to say we give in we submit we'll worship the god of israel and they would have been forgiven that's what ruth's doing ruth is an example of someone from outside of israel who's welcomed into the family of israel because she worships israel's god if they'd asked for terms of settlement they would have been forgiven and so you'll see little instances like that all the way through and so yes it's horrific but When we judge God, we're actually saying our standards are higher than yours. There are reasons for this. The people of Canaan were terrible. They were wicked. God used his people as an instrument of judgment. Uh, He brought their judgment day forward in time. So that's my take on that big problem, very briefly. Right? Now, that'll do for now. Are there any questions? Make it loud for a deaf man too. Yeah, the microphone only goes one way. Right. You, you spoke about um, the period between Malachi and the New Testament yep. of the four hundred years, yep. and that hit me recently in the study. Um, the, it, you had the, the period of time between one and two thousand uh, before BC. Yep. Four hundred years is twenty percent. Of that period, you also just mentioned about uh, judges, and in 300 years, yeah. there, were, there were five judges, and that's significant. Yep. Why? And I, I didn't know that the, the Catholics had a books between. Yep. Five. Is there a reason why the Protestant yeah. Bible doesn't have it? Yeah. Have that gap filled? They were never included in the Hebrew canon, uh, so they weren't included in, in the books that the Jews regarded as inspired, so they weren't part of the books that Jesus and Paul and Peter and all the rest of them were reading when they quoted from the Old Testament. So what we call the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament books are quoted in the New Testament. Esther's not, uh, there might be one or two others that aren't, but so much of what we call the New Testament relies on a background in the Old Testament, not one of those. They're called, we call them intertestamental books because they come from the period between the two testaments. Um, uh, not one of those books is quoted. There's one or two that are alluded to. So the book of Jude looks like it, it, um, it, it, it looks a bit... Uh, I've forgotten the name of the book that it, it, it relies on. So the Jews would have known them, but they weren't regarded as scripture. And people who know about these things say that there are elements of them that do not deal as accurately with history as the books that have been that we regard as as in the, the canon. Uh, they, they're not as accurate, and there's other things in which they're flawed. So some of their theology is a bit skew if so. Um, the Anglican position on them, when, when the Reformation happened, the Anglican position was that they could be read for profit, but they weren't to be regarded as scripture. 
so you can read them and say oh yeah we can learn bits and pieces from them but the other thing is that the authorship of them in many many cases is uncertain and and sometimes it was known that there was a, a particular style of Jewish writing at that time where they would write as though they were writing in someone else's name so we'd call that forgery but it was accepted but but none of the bible books is like that uh so we're not not entirely sure who wrote them and sometimes they they assumed someone else's name to give them status that they probably didn't deserve does that make sense yes in way we can explain it i suppose what, what can happen in 300 years, what can happen in 400 years. Yeah. And, and there's something... Well, I, I can't tell. Yeah, well, I think what we'd say is that Malachi was the last of the prophets that God raised up to speak on his behalf and there wasn't another one until John the Baptist. So there was a long period of silence. John's really the last Old Testament prophet. And so he, he dresses like Elijah. He's got, you know... Um, a, a hairy cloak and he, he comes from the desert he and and the book of malachi actually says that god's going to send another elijah and so jesus says that's him uh and so uh there was there were other periods of silence where god didn't speak so for instance um jacob when when joseph calls jacob to come down and join him in egypt Jacob gets to Beersheba and he worships God. He makes a sacrifice and God speaks to him. He says, go on down, I'll be with you. So Jacob's 130 years old and to have a two-week trip on a cart at the age of 130 is probably more than most 130-year-olds want to do. But God says, don't worry, I'll be with you, right? And so we think, well, that's fantastic. Isn't it good that God speaks to people? Um, The previous time God spoke to Jacob was 20 years prior but the next time God speaks to anyone is over 400 years later when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. So God speaking in a way that humans can hear is, is a rare event in Bible history. If you, add it, if you look at where they all occur, they don't happen that much. So, so yeah, there was a 400 period where God didn't speak uh, because he, he'd said enough through the other prophets. All they had to do was... In fact, the prophets were really saying, just listen to what Moses said. If you do what Moses said, you won't need us. But they didn't do what Moses said. So God had finalised his his revelation and the next prophet to come was John. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons the Catholics like the intertestamental books is because that's where you read about purgatory. So in the book of Maccabees, there's a, a reference to something that makes it sound like purgatory is a real thing. But there's no suggestion of it anywhere in the books that we would regard as as... as being part of God's inspired word yeah yeah so there's a, to, to boil it all down they're never quoted in the New Testament there's problems about their authorship there's problems about the accuracy of the way they deal with history and and so for that reason they're, they're not regarded as as being the scriptures that Jesus read it would affect the credibility of the Bible yeah pick holes in in the 400 years Books today, uh, and I wouldn't want to be reading things that were incredible. Yeah, well, that's 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 right. Yeah. I, I lose my well, trust the trust the ones. 
Yeah, we'll trust the ones that Jesus read then. Yeah, and the, oh, the other thing is that we know a lot about the Bible that Jesus read from the, disc, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 or whatever, 48, um, that because we can tell that they're at least a hundred years before Jesus, we can see the kind of things that the Jews believed uh, even before Jesus hit the scene, and you won't find those extra canonical books numbered amongst the Jewish canon in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. Good question. (laughs) It's one of those ones I'll probably need to go back and do a bit more homework on too. It's a little while since I've done much reading about that. Is is there anything else? Yeah, Vicky. A little question that's probably insignificant. I see up there this asteroid that's well, no, I think that there would be some people who would see that as significant. Yeah. Uh, I, I, look, I, I haven't done a lot of work on this side of things, but I think that there are some people... The, the, the idea of worshipping Mary is called by people that think it's a bad idea, Mary-olatry. So we, we've... Um, and... There's no suggestion in the in the scriptures that she's anything other than a woman, like a woman blessed of God and a woman charged with God with an incredible responsibility, and so that must make her somewhat special. But she had to she had to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour too, um, and and you can see traces of that throughout the gospel record. So this idea that she's the Queen of Heaven is is not one that you'll find supported in the Bible. She's, we're never told that we can pray to her, uh, or that, or that we, you know, she'll get our requests through to her son more quickly than if you pray direct, you know, because that's the story. Um, the, the Catholics have taken the Bible and added to it, and they, they they've got this idea that that ordinary, unordained people will never be able to understand the word without the intercession of priests and so the church sits above the word they'll tell you which bits you need to know and which bits you can safely avoid and and so they they've added they've added things to it so for instance have you ever heard of saint anne you know who saint anne is mother of mary right where do we read about her answer we don't right but they theorized well if 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 you want to get your requests to jesus you talk to mary but fair chance it'd be good to have a chat to her mum too right it's just look you go online if you don't believe me the, the catholic encyclopedia is fully available online just google St Anne, you'll find her um and she was martin luther's favorite saint you know but um have you ever heard of saint veronica right you know where veronica comes from another one she's not in the bible but we're told that well what happened was they found this piece of cloth in the medieval era which seemed to have the imprint of a bloody face on it and so they said well that looks like jesus right now we know from the account of luke that on the way to the cross jesus was ministered to by the women of jerusalem so they've got this rag with a bloody face on it and they think hmm Maybe that was one of the women of Jerusalem who did that. And, of course, you could make big money in the medieval era by having an icon or a, a relic of Jesus in your, your cathedral or your church. People would come from all over and they'd pay money. 
And so they had to give this unnamed woman of Jerusalem a name. So they called her Veronica, which means true image. Veritas, you know, know, verify, that means true. Icon, image, Veronica, put them together. Um, So it's just make-believe, it's just made up. Uh, Just to support their habit of, you know, so... Unfortunately, the Roman Catholics have added to the content of the word, and Paul says, "Don't go beyond what's written." Um, and so that's our goal. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, but you'll notice that people like Peter and John and Paul and Barnabas. And John the Apostle, they, or, you know, when they're offered worship, they go, hang on, not, you know, leave us up out of this, you know, we, we're just people. Uh, there's only one who should be worshipped. Yeah, Yingy. Um, I don't pray to Mary, and I don't think uh, pray to Jesus needs to through Mary, because Mary is the one I chat with a friend, she's a close friend of me, and she's a Catholic, and that's it, we argue about that, and she said, oh, read the Bible. The she didn't believe in him because um, you know when Jesus heals the man in the house the, uh, there's just so much there's so many people around uh, people come in and say oh your mother and your your mother and your brothers are outside and he, he looks around and says who is my mother who's my brothers right and he means you are right um, so you know, there's, there's evidence that Jesus family thought he was out of his mind so they had to be converted too uh, and clearly, by the cross, Mary was—you know—she was there. Uh, but there's just no suggestion that because she made an instruction on Jesus' behalf, that gives us an opportunity to pray to her. Uh, I had a friend who was raised in a Catholic orphanage. Uh, lovely lady, um, tragic life. But uh, once she became a, actually one of the steps on her journey to becoming a Christian. Um, she was brought up in this Catholic orphanage and the, the nuns told her to pray to Mary. She's no, when I, when I want answers, I go straight to the top. That's, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And see, prayer is this great... Dave, Dave called it a privilege this morning as he was praying and that's a good way to think of it. But in prayer, we come to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit and we only have access to the Father because Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Right, so... Isn't it wonderful that God listens? There's a psalm, I was just reading it a couple of weeks ago, and the psalmist addresses God, it says, Oh, you who hear prayer. That's a description of God. Who's God? Oh, he's the one who hears prayer. Deuteronomy 4 says he's not far from us whenever we pray to him. What nation is like ours that has God near us whenever we pray to him? So, Mary... You see, we don't pray that angels, do we have guardian angels? Oh, guardian angels, right, that's a good question. 
that's another one that's not clear in the Bible. Uh, but there's some verses that tend to suggest that we may. And so Jesus says at one point, uh, he's talking about children, and he says, even their angels. Well, I can't remember the rest of it. Do you remember that one, Nathan? But there's a suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. So that, but there's also a suggestion that angels have a particular role with nations. So in the book of Daniel. So um, it's one of those ones that's not super clear. But the book of Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to help those receiving salvation. So if it's not clear, uh, then don't make too much of it, but just be grateful that God has a lot of different ways of protecting you, uh, one of which is angelic. Uh, so he'll give you... Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those ones I wouldn't want to go too hard on in terms of making a big doctrine about it, but just be grateful because God says... To Joshua, I'll never leave you, forsake you. Jesus says, I'll be with you always. And yeah. Yeah, look. I have had one vision, and it was true. Um, and I'm not into the Yeah. We had a neighbour who was just dead on his own. And we used to take him into Sheffield um, on a Thursday because he used to drink a lot of them. Mm. He used to ride his bike home with a nine miles over the Sheffield. And uh, he didn't turn up this day. We didn't think anything of it because he rode it every day. Mm. Um, and we were milking and I turned around and a bike rock right across the sky. And I said to my husband, it was gone. And by the time we looked around, it was gone. Mm. And it didn't come, so I said to my husband, I said, there's something wrong. And he went out and found him dead. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder, I often wonder about it. I haven't really got an answer for that. The book of Hebrews again tells us that we've got to show hospitality to people because people in the past have done that and entertained angels unaware. So I do believe in angels. And I have heard of people who's, you know, people with stories like you. I haven't had an experience like that, but angels are ministering spirits sent to. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, I believe they're real, but I don't think they've got wings. I mean, I, I, um, cherubs are terrifying. You know, yeah. yeah, don't learn your theology from paintings because um, cherubs are not fluffy little children with, you know, sort of, they're, they're terrifying. Uh, yeah, so we'll have to preach through Hebrews one day. Yeah, yeah Derek. Um, the Israelites ended up in captivity in Egypt because Joseph never returned. Yeah. No. No, that's that's a really good question, and this is my take on it. 
uh, I believe that the period in Egypt was quarantine. And so I think the instrumental verse is Genesis 15, 16. So it's the second time when God makes these promises to Abraham and he says, know for sure that when this comes about, uh, these descendants are going to be in, in a land. It, he doesn't say which one, but he says it'll be 400 years. And then he gives the reason, he says, and they'll come back here in the fourth generation. And then he gives the reason for the wickedness of the Ammonites is not yet complete. And, and so if you look at the story of Jacob's children, Judah, who becomes very important in the whole Bible story because he's the father of the tribe that gives us David, that gives us Jesus, he goes off chasing Canaanite women. And so he's, he's disregarded the idea that he should maintain... You know, Abraham wouldn't have one of the local women for Isaac. He sent his servant back to where he'd come from. And so he was really concerned to preserve sort of moral purity in, in the, the family of God. And, and so Judah goes against that with disastrous consequences, but then Judah is rehabilitated throughout the Joseph story. Uh, but I think that what's happening there is that God uses the events, the wickedness of the brothers to get Joseph into a position of prominence in Egypt and when the brothers come, Joseph said, this is for the saving of many lives. And even the Egyptians credit Joseph as being a saviour. Um, and so I think that that period was quarantine. And, and it's because the wickedness of the Amorites hasn't yet reached its fullness. And I think also that that's 400 years in which they could repent. And they didn't. And so God used is, the, 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 the returning Israelites who are going back to the land that he promised Abraham as his instrument of judgment. But the period in Egypt became progressively oppressive. And so it says in Egypt, in, in Exodus, uh, there was a king who'd forgotten about Joseph, a king who knew not Joseph. And, and so the Israelites regarded it as a period of oppression. And, and, and in Psalm 105, I think it is, it says that, um, that there was a period of testing there. That's a good. That's a good question, and I suspect not. I, I I had a fascinating conversation. My my dad was a dentist, and he had a patient who was a biblical archaeologist. And I rang this bloke and said, "See you, Linda." I asked if I could come round and have a chat to him one day, and that was one of the questions I asked. And uh, he. He said to me, oh, you wouldn't expect a nation to keep records of such a humiliating event. Nations tend... This is why the book of Acts is fascinating, because it records all the bad bits. Uh, nations tend to preserve the things that show them in a good light. And so I, I, I suspect that there wouldn't be a record of it. Yeah. Um, you, you would have thought Egypt would have turned to God looking Yeah, well, yeah, that's one of the puzzling things about people. You know, like, wouldn't you think that after Jesus raising the smelly Lazarus after four days dead in the tomb, that would be enough to convince everybody? But some believed and some went and told the Pharisees and they just said, we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. So even miracles don't convince people. So... Anyway, look, um, what about we pray before we head off? And uh, Loving Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it, it, you know, it's a rich word, it's got great stories in it, but it tells us about your purpose to restore blessing to the world through a king much better than David. 
um, to a prophet much greater than Moses. Uh, we, we thank you that you've sent Jesus to be our saviour and we ask now that you would help us to read his word carefully so that we can gain a deeper appreciation of all for which we should be grateful. And um, yeah, so please help us to be careful readers of your word and people who take it to heart and who, who live according to the things that we find there. Uh, watch over us as we go and uh, guard us until we meet again and uh, we thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.